And I'm McKenna. And together we're the Daily Profcast. We're two long-distance besties who share a love of Harry Potter. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome back to the Daily Profcast. Today we are continuing our Prisoner of Azkaban journey with chapters five through eight. Are you having so much fun? Oh my gosh. You mean with with this book? Yeah. This is my favorite one. It's my favorite one. There's so many, there's just so much good stuff. So many good new characters and it's so fun. Are you? I am enjoying the heightened reading level and just more content that we're getting in this book. It is really good. I'm discovering a new love for the book. Good. That makes me happy. I think once I rediscovered a love for Sirius Black, I rediscovered Prisoner of Azkaban. But anyway, I'm really enjoying my comfort character. Yeah, it's so good. It's funny you say that. I actually think Remus Lupin is my comfort character. I found this weird feeling inside of me where Remus is my favorite character, but Sirius is like my comfort character. And I don't know why there's a difference there, but I'm really glad Remus is your comfort character. That makes me really happy. He's just... Well, we'll talk about it as we get into it. Great. Oh, good. We get to meet him in this chapter. It's the best. I know. He's just all sorts of good, honestly. I think that's just really what it is. We're going to kick this off like Aaron's ever doing chapters five through eight, if you're reading along with us. And chapter five is The Dementor. Scary. I tried my best when I was taking notes to write less obvious plot stuff and more interesting insight stuff. The first thing I wrote about this chapter in my notes was that right off the bat, it just feels off. It's dark, cold. I just got an icky feeling while reading it, knowing basically what was to come. Yeah. It's like setting the the tone for what's going to happen later on the train, but we already get the sense that something's weird. We've been getting that sense throughout the first four chapters, but we especially get the sense that something's weird because the ministry has organized this motorcade, essentially, to take the Weasleys to the train station they say oh it's to take Arthur and his family because he won that prize and we're just going to be nice and we know he doesn't have a car really it's because Harry's with them it is interesting that they organize a proper motorcade I guess maybe it's because King's Cross station is not like a strictly wizard train station so in order to get them there and onto the stuff that's true yeah I'm guessing they couldn't just like port key to them to the platform based on you know, how you have to travel through the wall to get onto the platform. That's a very good question. So what do other wizarding families do when they have a bunch of luggage? Do they just take the tube? Well, I would say most families don't have as many children as the Weasleys do. That's true. And the Weasleys kind of collect strays. They have Hermione and Harry. That's very true. That that was my next note, actually. The Weasleys are particularly protective of Harry. Yeah, I, I wrote down that the hug between Harry and Molly, it should feel like a sweet moment. But it almost feels like desperate mother clinging to child moment. I I feel like Molly is just, I really hope this boy returns back to us. Yeah, there's a little bit of anxiety. We get the sense that Harry feels it as well. Then, of course, on the platform, Arthur pulls Harry aside and asks him, I guess more sort of warns Harry not to go searching for Sirius. Yes. Which, number one, is funny because he knows he's going to. When you tell somebody not to touch something and then they get just this overwhelming desire to touch that thing, you know? I know, it's so funny. He asks Harry, please don't go looking for Sirius. And Harry... That was probably the worst thing he could have said to Harry. Because Harry's like, 
why would I do that? Well, the logic of a young boy, he says, well, I'm not scared because basically nothing could be worse than Voldemort, which is interesting because we're about to find out what Harry's bogger is and it's not Voldemort. Exactly. He doesn't know that at this point because we haven't met the Dementors. Yeah. But I just thought that was, I don't know, just, it felt so James of him to be like, well, I've already encountered Voldemort. Nothing could be worse than that. Yeah, yeah. And yet every year gets worse. <laughs> Harry, nothing could be worse than Voldemort? Well, you haven't hit puberty yet, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Harry, Ron, and Hermione decide to sit in this car with this youngish man who is asleep. This is the first adult that they've ever seen on the train, except for the lady who comes by with the sweets on the trolley. That actually leaves me with the question, because in later books, like Slughorn rides the Hogwarts Express too. Do some professors just desire to ride the train and they can, and some years they don't? I've always thought that maybe some Hogwarts professors go early to do basic lesson planning and prepping for the beginning of the year and faculty meetings. Yeah, that's how it should be. Maybe some professors live there year round as well. And I, I'm sure that there are some that are. And that a lot of people have the question, do professors have homes outside of Hogwarts? Do they have families? Well, yeah, Snape, Snape has a home, which is, I guess, just used his summer home. But at the same time, if you're a Hogwarts professor, you can flew back and forth out of your office to wherever you want to go. So we never see that. That's something that's totally not explained and completely left out. And again, it's from the student's perspective. But that just, when you build a world like this, there are so many unanswered questions when it's just from one student's perspective. Right. Which is why the fandom is, of course, so interesting, because we've all been able to imagine our own pieces to the puzzle. Yeah. 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 So, okay, so we meet Remus. Yeah. Hermione says, well, that's Professor R.J. Lupin. And Ron's like, how do you know? And she's like, it's honest trunk, you idiot. <laughs> yeah. Because she's observant. Do you know what the J stands for? John. Yay. I wrote down three quick facts since this is a new character for us. So mm -hmm. Remus John Lupin was born March 10th, 1960. Correct. So that would make him how old? 33. Yeah. He's a half-blood wizard whose mom was a muggle. Yes. It feels obvious, but I guess a lot of people wouldn't know if this is your first time reading the books. He's a Gryffindor. Yeah. Yeah. We will, we will learn that later. The first description that we get of Professor R.J. Lupin is he's got these shabby robes. He looks ill and tired. Very important. He's young, but his hair is flecked with gray and it's light brown. I want to talk really quick about the fact that he looks ill and tired. So this is not a spoiler-free zone. Just a theme I want to explore as we're reading Prisoner of Azkaban is how poorly the author writes about Remus's condition as like a disability or chronic illness because if your body breaks and your bones break and shift around every single month once a month and then it, you reconstruct yourself that's going to come with a lot of like chronic pain it's not well written in so that's something i want to keep exploring i will say there is an account on tiktok called thesis read the creator of that account, they are a disabled person and they have this amazing analysis of Remus as a disabled person from a disabled person's point of view. I would really recommend going to check out at Thesis Reads series on Remus and disability, but that's a, a topic I want to continue to explore because it does say he looks young, but his hair is flecked with gray. 
because we know that he looks way older than he actually is because of his condition. And that's typically a thing that happens to people with chronic illness. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine, I don't know, that pain of what his body goes through. Yeah. And to think it's just over in a night, woohoo, is, is, yeah, it's pretty naive. I don't know why I didn't write it down, but I think it happens, right? The sneakoscope goes red. Yes, I want to just, yes, let's talk about that. So the sneakoscope goes off. And probably our first thought as a reader, as they encounter this new person. Yes, if it's your first time reading, your initial thought is likely to be, oh, there's something fishy about this new person. Like he can't be trusted, right? Because we've learned that the sneakoscope goes off when you're in the presence of somebody who cannot be trusted. Yes. Yeah. And we are in the presence of somebody who can't be trusted. Yeah, but it's just not who you might initially think it is. But it is set up for to make us think that maybe it's this new character. The Dementors come into the train. And they're patrolling for Sirius. Right. So again, Arthur has just warned Harry not to go searching for Sirius. Harry's like, why would I go searching for Sirius? He's just half in the loop, half out of the loop. It's just all confusing. And then it's just so sad because the train ride to Hogwarts is supposed to be this happy, amazing time. It basically kicks off the best part of Harry's year every year. Now he's just been attacked essentially by this horrible, awful creature. I think what's really notable in that moment is that Harry hears the scream of a woman. Every time Harry encounters Dementors in the future, he's going to have this same experience. What we know about Dementors is that they feed off of happiness and happy memories and love. They can cause a person to relive their very worst memories. When Harry's hearing the scream, it's the scream of his dying mother. Before the Dementor attack, the lights go off in the train and Lupin wakes up. And the first thing I wrote down is he knows Harry's name. I can't imagine if this were written from Lupin's perspective, can you imagine, you know, Harry's going to be there, but can you imagine just waking up from your nap? Because he's probably just gone through a transformation. If not the day before, like a couple days before waking up from your nap, because you're so exhausted and you wake up and the first person you see is your childhood best friend. Are you like the face of your childhood best friend? So jarring. And seeing his son who you've probably been prevented from seeing because he's been protected at the Dursleys and just seeing him there. And he, Lupin acts so calm and collected, but he knows Harry's name. He says his name. And then he intervenes when Malfoy is there, which is automatically the opposite of a red flag. You're like, okay, I like this dude. Yeah. Um, And then he conjures flames in his hand when the train lights go out. And then after Harry faints, he uses the Patronus. And then Harry and Ron and Hermione are describing it. There was this like silver light. I always thought that maybe, you know, he was napping, but he was in and out of sleep and was a little bit cognizant of what was going on around him because he has such a quick response to everything. Yeah, that's that's something we never really find out about. I I can imagine just with his condition, he'd be tired all the time. So I was always under the impression that he really is sleeping, but you're right. He does wake up sort of quick and get on it. I have a question. So Ginny's there and she's crying. Do you think the de- the Dementor also affected Ginny? I fully believe at this point, Ginny might have some residual PTSD and trauma because not even six months prior, she has basically been within inches of her life on the brink of death 
face to face with Voldemort, who's manipulated her to basically selling out the man she's eventually going to marry, but right now somebody who she considers to be a very close and personal friend. So I have to imagine Ginny is weeping because she's probably been brought back to that moment a little yeah. bit. I wrote down, actually, it's interesting you bring that up, that when Harry is asking them, did you hear the scream as well? Um, and Ron and Hermione are like, no, we, but you looked like you were having a fit, but we didn't hear the scream. It's so sad to me because it's just one of those things that further alienates Harry from his friends. In the last book, he was, you know, hearing voices and he's the boy who lived. There's just so many things that separate him from a normal childhood. A lot of that is just like awful trauma that he has gone through since he was literally a baby. The worst memory he has, he really doesn't even fully know it, but it's his mother dying. That's what he's hearing. And Ginny, in her own way, has gone through like very similar trauma as well. And I think that is something that will probably bond them. Totally. Totally. I agree. She's Um, like the only person who can really understand that. Absolutely. Like having Voldemort in your head and what that feels like. In order to help Harry recover from this Dementor attack, Remus offers him chocolate. Yes. And that becomes like a thing for Remus. That's like a character trait now. We always associate him with chocolate. It is. But when Harry gets to the castle, McGonagall pulls him aside and Madame Pomfrey comes in and she also offers him chocolate. Yeah, it's a common remedy. Yeah, so I think a lot of people think it's just a Remus thing, but I, it, it is more widespread than that, though it is a cute association. To it is a cute association, and it's, uh, there, it is sort of a fanon rather than canon thing that Remus is, like, chocolate is Remus's thing. It's just the, it's how you recover from a Dementor attack. It's the remedy. Probably because chocolate is good and warm and fuzzy and all the good things. Yeah, exactly. Endorphins. Yeah, yeah exactly. So... Harry's quite embarrassed that McGonagall and and Madame Pomfrey are making such a fuss over him, but um, he eventually convinces them that he's fine, whatever. They all go to the feast together. Dumbledore gives his classic, always does it, start of term speech. He basically just acts Harry right in the speech and he's like, nobody should be leaving the castle. Nobody should be wandering off, even with an invisibility cloak. Hint, hint, Harry Potter. (laughs) The beginning of term speech is always unsettling. Harry's first year, he's like, oh yeah, don't go into the third floor corridor, otherwise you might die. I don't know if Dementors just exist in the wild. I'm sure they do, but most of the Dementors we see are employed I don't know like they don't like walk around and use money in Diagon Alley so I don't know what exactly the arrangement is but they are I guess employed by Azkaban to sort of they're like the the prison guards I I wrote this actually at the end of my notes for this chapter dementors are horrifying similar to Voldemort but the difference that's really interesting to know especially looking at this as adults is that they are sent and controlled by the ministry. I think that's a big literary clue as to the ministry is not all sunshine and rainbows. And there's definitely some evil things afoot. Like imagine how Harry just felt with a brief five minute encounter, the Dementor. Imagine the people who have been 
imprisoned at Azkaban for a great many years, even if they did something wrong. And this is something that's super relevant to today's world as we talk about the conditions in which prisoners are living in, especially in America. And do you deserve to have every fundamental basic human rights stripped away, even if you committed a crime? It's just very interesting to think about as an adult. I don't know how close they reside to prisoners' quarters or if they're just floating on the vicinity. You like, I think we hear later when people are talking about Azkaban that just the whole entire place feels awful. And just like having to reside there, I feel like that's a form of torture. Again, and we can like from Harry's encounter, we can discern what happens if you have to live with that 24-7. Yeah, that's rough. So when everybody, you know, is saying, oh, Sirius Black is mad, well... Yeah, wouldn't you be mad too if you had to live like that? It's horrific. Totally. Absolutely. Bellatrix Lestrange is still in there. And she's a whole heck of a lot of crazy. So imagine if you went in there with mental health problems, how you'd come out. It's awful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Something else I noted at this part of the chapter is they said that Lupin looks shabby next to the other teachers in their best robes. So rude. <laughs> Classist. It and it's totally I that we're being painted a picture of Lupin right now. It is a really big contrast to Lockhart. If we're thinking about what position we were in last year and what position we are in now. It's interesting because Lockhart looked like he would be the perfect thing, right? The perfect teacher. He was handsome and supposedly well-traveled and well-experienced and had all of the right attributes on paper but he was an absolutely terrible teacher and role model for the students. And Lupin, he looks like he would be all the wrong things on paper. Didn't have much of a postgraduate career, really. Looks shabby and disheveled and sick and all of these bad things, but he's going to end up being one of the best teachers that they ever have, or I would dare say the best teacher they ever have. Absolutely. 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 That's another thing we have to talk about when we're talking about Remus and his condition as a disability. I don't know if everybody, if this is like a commonly known thing among most people in the fandom, but before James died, James was Lupin's patron. James was exorbitantly wealthy. Lupin had no means of supporting himself because if he were to go into a wizarding profession, he would get suspicion from the wizarding world about these monthly disappearances and absences. Even when he's in a muggle profession, way below his education level, he's you know still missing a lot of work because he's ill. He'd have to miss at least once a month. That probably gets him fired from jobs very quickly. So Lupin's been impoverished for ever since James died because James was supporting him. And then when James died, he had no means of making money for himself. The other thing that we should note about the staff table is it says that Snape was staring at Lupin with loathing. You can imagine how Snape probably feels having the best friend of his childhood rival at Hogwarts on staff with him, not to mention the whole added dimension of, we're going to have to talk about the prank a little bit probably later, but the added dimension of how that fundamentally changed Snape's life. I always think if Lupin hadn't been so close to Sirius and James, and if Snape had been like 20% a better person, obviously the hallmarkly bad thing of Snape while at Hogwarts is that he called Lily a mudblood. That we know of in canon, yeah. That we know of in canon, yeah. 
like I think Lupin and Snape actually in a different life could be friends. Probably. They're both both introverted. They're both exceptionally brilliant wizards. Very smart. Like I could see them coming up with spells together and potions and like having very similar intellectual curiosities. That's a nice thing to think about. Like if Snape had gone down a different path and not chosen to become a wizard Nazi, that's a nice thought actually. Yeah. Snape had just better emotional intelligence, you know? Oh, Snape. And then Hagrid is the Care of Magical Creatures professor. Yes, we get that announcement that Hagrid is a professor now, which is so sweet, but a big step up for Hagrid. I hope it came with a pay raise. Absolutely. It's really cute. It's a very sweet moment. And it says the Gryffindor table erupts with cheers and praise and excitement. I think that's just very nice. I'm so happy for Hagrid. Although I do have later on, as we're going to talk, I think in the next chapter, I have some criticisms of Hagrid, but yeah, in this moment, I'm very happy with Hagrid. Chapter six is called Talons and Tea Leaves. This is one of my favorite chapter names, it's so I good. think, ever. It's so good. Yeah, same, actually. We get a tidbit about how Hermione has 10 subjects, which would be too many to fit in all at once. I felt very validated because one of the subjects she's taking is arithmetic arithmancy we finally hear about math these kids are learning (laughs) it's not even math it's like the magical properties of numbers which i guess would equate to a math class for them i'm just happy somebody's learning about numbers somebody's taking somebody's learning about numbers some sort of stem education going on (laughs) yes exactly exactly this is going to continue throughout the book but ron pays a lot of attention to hermione he's always the first to notice when she is there, when she isn't there. Which is interesting because I think one of the criticisms Hermione has of Ron is that she often feels overlooked by Ron as not a real woman or not a real girl or not a real option. Yeah, that's true. But he pays a lot of attention to her. Something else I wrote down and did a bit of research on is that Bill Weasley... We learned this in the last book. And Barty Crouch Jr. both received 12 OWLs during their time at Hogwarts. I wonder, did they also have access to a time turner? Or maybe did they not have to take the class, but they were allowed to sit for the exam? That's a great question. We never find out if this is a thing that they have been allowing high achieving students to do. And then they stop. They have their first divination class. Yes, I have so much to say about this situation. (laughs) So in divination, which how would you describe divination? It's the art, the skill of telling the future and being a mystic. Is that kind of how you would describe it? Yeah. Yeah. So in divination, I did a lot of research about this today. You are either a seer or you're not. So a seer can receive genuine visions of the future with their inner eye. There are people who are seers and there are people, everybody else who is not a seer. What is weird to me is why are these kids taking this class with the intention or the knowledge that 99.9% of them are likely not going to be seers? A little bit of a tangent here, but in Christianity, there is this idea that there is a basket of spiritual gifts 
that could be bestowed upon you. There's many spiritual gifts and not everybody's going to have every one. It's this idea that there's specific spiritual gifts that can be given. One of them is the gift of prophecy, Mm -hmm. but not everybody has every spiritual gift. And that's what makes us unique, especially like the idea is that's what makes Christians unique within a community of each other is that not everybody is going to have the same spiritual gift. And so in the idea of a church, there's people who are great at public speaking. There's people who have a wonderful heart for service. There's people who are logistically minded, you know, and all together, it can be brought together and and make a great church. So I see being a seer kind of like having the gift of prophecy. That's a really, really good parallel. Thank you for that. And I used to go to a church And I went to a church meeting or like a church event one night and there was this, I I, to preface, do not go to this church anymore, but there was this pastor from a different location who was visiting and he said to everybody like, pair up with the person to your right and you're now going to prophesy over each other. A lot of people walked out because the idea is that not everybody has the gift of prophecy. So If only 0.1% of the population is going to have this gift, then most of the people in there are just going to be lying to each other, grasping at straws to find something that might make sense. I see divination class kind of like this. There's a small chance there might be a seer in the class. Yeah. But there's an overwhelmingly likely chance. And as we see, as they're reading the tea leaves and stuff, that people are not going to know what they're doing and are not going to possess this gift. And it actually calls to question the idea that Sybil Trelawney herself might not even be a seer. And this is a really big question within the fandom is, is she a fraud who kind of accidentally gets something right? Or is she legit, but she just misinterprets almost everything that she sees? These are all fantastic questions you're asking. And I'm loving this conversation, by the way. But in Greek mythology, we've got this figure named Cassandra and she was a a seer who... I might be butchering this. So somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but she rejected, you know, we know that Zeus liked to come down and seduce human women, but she rejected Zeus's advances. And then Zeus cursed her to, she had the gift of sight, but her curse was that nobody would believe her prophecies. So I think she predicted that I could be, again, I could be very wrong. She predicted that something would happen to Troy and nobody believed her. And then, you know, the, then you get the, the story of the Trojan horse and blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, so Trelawney's in canon, Trelawney's great grandmother's name was Cassandra. With Trelawney, what what we do see is she has these, she does predict stuff in this class. She's like, oh, you're gonna drop that teacup, you know, something bad might happen to you. But it's like, it's always like, okay, did this was this really prophecy or was it coincidence? There have been a couple times when Trelawney has definitely had moments of being a seer. And the, the other question is like. How often is a seer a seer? Are they, do they always have access to it? Do they only sometimes have access to that gift? Does it like sort of happen upon them? Because for Trelawney, when she was interviewing for this post in early 1980 with Dumbledore, her interview was going really badly and Dumbledore was like ready to walk out the door. Suddenly she went into a trance-like state and gave the first prophecy about Harry Potter or the chosen one which could have been Harry or Neville and gave this prophecy and then didn't remember a moment of it because she had gone into this like trance-like state. And then she also does this later in the book to Harry 
this is really the first time I've ever cared enough to look into Sybil Trelawney in this level of detail, is that she was so caught up with, sort of like Gilderoy Lockhart, so caught up in like the mystique of the job, you know, and looking the part and like making predictions about death and bad omens and that she just almost couldn't be taken seriously. Yeah. She's sort of a trope. Yes, exactly. She like becomes this trope and that like, you're right, it sort of like cheapens what she can do. What's even better to me is just Hermione's like instant hatred of her and of the class, which is so out of Hermione's character to not respect teachers and to not be wanting to soak in all the information. I think it's so outside of Hermione's wheelhouse because she likes facts and books and things that are tangibly true to her. Yes. I think hard for her to let her guard down and to engage in this sort of class. McGonagall also has a lot of trepidations about Trelawney and divination. And those two characters are often very much compared to one another. And they're both Enneagram ones. And I just Mm -hmm. find it to be such an Enneagram one thing. Yeah, probably. And the other thing for Hermione is she's very book smart. She's very good at and very diligent in her studies. And in a class where you're dealing with what they call an imprecise sort of art and science and Hermione can't follow a potion recipe or read a book and absorb the information, automatically Hermione's going in like, probably a little bit nervous because if she doesn't have that gift, then she can't succeed in the class. And that is her biggest fear. Hermione is not so much a creative witch. She's very, very smart, but she's very by the book. And we see it in Half-Blood Prince when Harry has the potions book and he's following the instructions in the margin rather than the recipe, it drives her nuts. Yeah. Because she's doing everything by the book and not getting the result that he's getting. Yeah, absolutely. We should talk about the Grimm. Yeah, so they're reading tea leaves. That's like their first exercise in class. Ron hands the teacup to Trelawney because he's like, it looks like a hippo, no, a sheep. Like he's sort of butchering it. So she grabs it. And she goes, oh, the Falcon, my dear, you have a deadly enemy. But everyone knows that, said Hermione in a loud whisper. And she's like, well, Harry and you know who. Then she sees the club and attack. Dear, dear, this is not a happy cup. And then Ron goes, I thought it was a bowler hat. (laughs) And then she sees a skull, which means danger in your path. And then she sees this other thing and she jumps back and she starts freaking out. Um, And she says, "My, my dear boy, my poor dear boy, no, you have the grim. And then the Grimm is like this sign of death in the wizarding world. And those who are sort of pure blood wizards, like Ron sort of freaks out a little bit and everyone else is like, what does that mean? Um, And Harry's mind immediately goes to when he saw that giant black dog after he left the Dursleys. He's like, was that the Grimm? Like, so Hermione's like, what a load of rubbish. And Ron's like, no, my uncle died from seeing the Grimm. And Harry's just sitting there like trying to think about Like, did I actually see this freaky dog thing? What's going on? What's great is that Ron gets a moment to shine here. Ron does best when he gets to be Harry's sort of wizard guide. And see, he sort of wizard splains the grim to Harry. Totally. (laughs) In Transfiguration, we see McGonagall in her animagus form, which is a pretty rare occurrence that that's sort of brought up into the book. And it's very fitting for 
this book in particular. Exactly. And the lesson is on Animagi. So we learn a bit about Animagi. Totally. So unfortunately, the next class, well, fortunately, the next class is Care of Magical Creatures. Unfortunately, like so many things in Hagrid's life, this is not going to go as planned. No. So exactly. First of all, he's Um, upset because none of the students understood how to open their terrifying books. You know, the one that just last episode, we were talking about Harry having to tie down with a belt. Um, So Hagrid's like, oh, you had to rub them, calm them down, and then they would open. Students are like, what? (laughs) Um, And then the first lesson is to introduce the students to hippogriffs. Which seems like a terrible idea. Yeah, it's like, that's kind of, they're big and they're, you know, potentially dangerous. And and this is the kids' first, this is their first lesson of care of magical creatures ever. This is the first year they can take this class. And this is sort of a weird creature to introduce them to. But, you know, we have to remember the fact that Hagrid wouldn't be like well-versed in lesson planning and curriculum. He just loves creatures and knows a lot about them and is good with them. So he hasn't come into this with a plan. He's also not very educated. Like he stopped school in essentially the, like the fourth grade or well, no, how old are you when you're, thir- what grade are you when you're 13? I guess the eighth grade. Um, well, um, essentially Harry has a good introduction to the hippogriff. They're very proud creatures. You have to bow to them, get their approval before you can approach. It goes well. Draco Malfoy does not do things by the book. It doesn't go well. Um, And we should note that Buckbeak is the particular hippogriff that Harry is working with and then that ends up attacking Malfoy. But there are multiple hippogriffs. Somewhere on the Hogwarts grounds, there's this like paddock like a, a herd of hippogriffs yeah, hippogri- yeah there's this, like herd of hippogriffs somewhere in hogwarts i want the blueprints so malfoy obviously gets hurt he needs to go to madame pomfrey he is definitely going to tell his father about this and it's not going to go well for hagrid the class just ends in a disaster and the trio decides to go visit hagrid at his hut later on to try and comfort him. Console him. him. Yeah. yeah. And when they get there, Hagrid is shwasted. Yes, he is. Which comes to my first point about Hagrid, that I think he might have a dependency on alcohol issue. Yes, probably. Because in the first book, we have learned that Hagrid got a little too sloshed at the pub and let out the secrets about you know, how the Sorcerer's Stone was being guarded. And now Hagrid has had a very bad first day of teaching and is... Has resorted to the drink. Yeah. Yeah, Um, absolutely. He tells them that the governors of Hogwarts are very upset about what happened. They're deliberating what should happen. Hagrid thinks he might be fired. This brings us to chapter seven. Yes. Oh, I love this chapter. And I also hate this chapter. I hate the first part. Love the second part. Draco's milking his injury. He's just trying to make Hagrid's life hell. He makes a comment to Harry that he says, if, if it were me and I were in your position, I would try and take revenge on Sirius Black. Yes. Which gave me a host of questions. 
Yes, I wrote this down as well. Does Draco know? I mean, he obviously would have picked this up from his father, which makes me wonder, does Lucius know the truth about Sirius at this point? And he's just not telling anybody that Sirius is actually innocent? Or is he feeding Draco this information to rouse a reaction in Harry in hopes that Harry might actually kill him off? Or do they really believe that Sirius has gone back to his noble house of black roots and is really a death eater? That's a really good question. Are they privy to the fact at this point that Wormtail that Peter was the spy, like how I, this is, this takes me back to just like a general question I have about the first Wizarding War. When Peter was spying for the other side, how many people were privy to the fact that he was a spy? We know Lucius was pretty high up in the ranks of Death Eaters. Was he allowed to know and meet with Wormtail? Or did, did only the Dark Lord and like certain people meet with Wormtail? Because Lucius would know interacting with Wormtail with Peter that he's the one that's the double agent, not Sirius if he's never seen Sirius. Snape doesn't know, and Snape was also a very high up death. Very high ranking. So so then Lucius probably doesn't know either. What I'm thinking is this comment is just from Draco is related to the House of Black. His mother Narcissa is part of the Black family. And I think this is coming from what he knows from her. Sirius would be Draco's Cousin, second cousin, cousin. second cousin. cousin. Yeah. Yes. Which Um, is so crazy that Draco and Sirius share some sort of blood connection. It's insane. And he knows that. And he's like, yeah, if it was me, I'd kill him. Draco's knowledge of Sirius comes from family ties. I guess as far as he knows and as far as the Black family knows, Sirius really did what everybody thinks he did. There's no indication otherwise. I would like to hear about this horrible potions class from your perspective, McKenna. Snape just, he just lacks emotional intelligence. That's really all I can say about Snape is he's, he really isn't pleasant. I never defend him for, you know, he's mean to students and not particularly pleasant to deal with. They go to the staff room, right? For... Yes, Lupin is late to class. Yes. Lupin is late to class. We don't really know why. Snape is also in the staff room. He, again, does poke fun at Neville, and Lupin is witness to it. Mm-hmm. Snape hurriedly leaves. So I kind of thought, you know, maybe Snape wanted to get out of there because he didn't want them seeing what his boggart was, because it might have blown the curtain off of him, you know? I think his boggart would probably be seeing Lily dead. Probably. Um, yeah that's a good that's a really good question or maybe even harry did he failed you know that's a really good question what would snape's bogart be so he he kind of gets out and what i love about lupin just the character of him is he gives neville a chance he lets neville go first and i think lupin does more for neville's character development in this book and it's an underappreciated theme but lupin is like the only professor like really furthering neville and investing in him and there's a reason why lupin was in the order of the phoenix would have been in the order of the with frank and alice he knows exactly what happened to them he probably knows what this means for neville and when he sees this scared boy he wants to give him a chance to honor frank and alice and it's very sweet 
we immediately get the sense that he's a good teacher because he's so hands-on. He's taken so much time to prepare something for class. He's really given it thought. He's got an entire curriculum we're going to find out in future chapters. He's really hands-on. Like good teachers are hands-on. We get the sense that he's a great teacher. He also already knows all of their names yeah, he doesn't call them by their last names either, which he is took, so endearing. Which means he took the time, he sat down in his office, and he learned all of their names. It, he's he just such the an time endearing, to do that. gentle, sweet man. He's a good teacher. Yeah, he cares. He's a good teacher. He cares. Yeah, he cares about his students. He's so, he's so encouraging is the other thing. Hermione answers a question correctly, and he compliments her, and it says, Hermione glowed. What I love about this lesson in particular is he has them like putting away the books, getting up and doing. And I think it's a very different and interesting, of course, potions, I suppose, is a hands-on class, but I'm sure a lot of their other courses are very stationary at the desk with the book. We've got a lot of implication in the other books that perhaps they have to write long parchments of papers and maybe just like very book heavy classes. And this is very hands-on practical learning. It's almost a little Montessori, but just goes in a different sort of style of education. Absolutely. He's so refreshing. It is. He is. He really is. And like, it's crazy to think that he just is this way and was not, he seems like he was meant to be a professor and this is not something he's done before. The cool thing about this first class is like, the dark arts is a scary subject, especially for kids. And the, right out the gate, the very first class, Lupin is giving them power over their fears, mm-hmm. which is beautiful, especially for Neville, when his fear is such a present person in his life as, his, as Snape being his teacher. What's weird is we only see Gryffindors get to fight the Boggart. Yeah. <laughs> and we know they take this class with people in other houses. I think Draco's fear would be his father. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think his father would have come out of the word for sure. And then Ron says this was the best lesson ever. So this is a little bit, it, it goes a little different than how we see in the movie. In the movie, Harry sees the Dementor. In the book, he doesn't have an opportunity to because Lupin pushes him out of the way before Harry can see the bogger and have it turn into whatever his fear is. And Lupin, it turns into the moon. Yes. And then flies away as a balloon yes which nobody's like hmm that's a weird fear i think they're probably so caught up in the excitement of the class absolutely they didn't really notice and we're gonna find out i think in the next chapter but lupin actually pushes harry out of the way because he thought that the boggart was going to be voldemort which obviously would have been exceptionally disturbing for everybody in the class for a class of third years totally and and but harry you know Harry's feeling really awful about this because he Lupin doesn't even explain to Harry why he's pushed him out of the way until later. So Harry's just sitting there thinking, oh, he saw me faint on the train and he perceives me to be weak. And when Harry's already getting so much flack from Draco about this, he's like feeling really awful about it. That brings us to chapter eight, the flight of the fat lady. Yeah, very, it gets spicy after this. I'm very excited. So it's sweet because we learn that Defense Against the Dark Arts has become a beloved class. We also learn that Snape has basically unleashed his terror on Neville 
because he's heard about the Boggart. <laughs> Just he's another awful. example of his really low, low, he's low awful. emotional intelligence. <laughs> then again, I mean, I would be mad if I was Snape too. <laughs> like, it would be one thing if this was, like, if the person who incited that in a class was just like some other professor but this is the best friend of his rival in school so like that like the fact that it is lupin adds another dimension of just like twisting the knife and snakes and it's time for hogsmeade which hogsmeade is i think doesn't hermione say it the only completely wizarding settlement recall to the first couple of chapters you have to have a permission slip signed to go to hogsmeade mr dursley did not sign it for Harry. Cornelius Fudge refused to sign it for Harry. And he asked McGonagall and she also says no. And of course we know, having experienced the story, besides for Vernon, they're doing it for Harry's own protection. He's safest in the castle, in theory behind the Dementors, like that's where he's going to be safest. I also do think a bit of this is McGonagall is just a rule follower. That yes, is for yes. Enneagram. Harry's upset, obviously. He can't go with his friends to Hogsmeade. But he gets another pretty good offer. And he gets to go have tea with Lupin. Lupin keeps him company. Better, honestly, than going oh, to Hogsmeade. It's bursting. He's so good. And Remus reveals to him that he thought the Boggart would turn into Voldemort. And Harry says no. He feared the fear of the Dementor instead. And Lupin's so impressed with Harry that even though Voldemort's a viable option on the table, he's more afraid of fear than the person. Yeah. Which is it, so interesting. And it's like solidifying the Gryffindorness too. It's notable that Lupin doesn't really divulge about his relationship to Harry's parents. It's that's really interesting, just like the way he treats Harry as his professor and how much he chooses to reveal to him and when it's just it's so interesting because we know the depth or we're going to find out the depth of Lupin's relationship to James and Lily. And yet he keeps things so professional. Like clearly he has a very good relationship with Harry if he's inviting him to tea and they're hanging out, but he never talks about anything that would possibly be seen as an unprofessional move for a teacher. He keeps it very, very professional. And I think a lot of that is to protect himself. Absolutely. From getting too involved and attached to Harry. But it's also, I think, really important because this is probably one of the only adults who sets good boundaries with Harry. Yes, absolutely. So, yes. Yeah, and, it's, and it's just such a sweet interaction. It is. And I, I think, you know, I think Lupin setting boundaries with Harry is absolutely intentional for his job and, you know, for his position. But at the same time, I think he's also setting boundaries for himself because after 13 years of probably being very alone and lonely and isolating himself and prior to that losing everybody he ever cared about in one night I don't know that Lupin can stand seeing Harry for the first time in 13 years and immediately jumping into getting attached to him I mean he's probably attached to him anyway and he's but he's like trying to you know he's he's this man is hurting 
Which Lupin does with a lot of other people in his life, tries yeah. to distance them. Oh, yes. For so he, many it's his reasons. Character flaw. Yeah, it's exactly. His it's his fatal flaws. flaw. Yeah. Um, because I think in some ways he thinks he's unlovable. So in in that's actually his biggest character flaw is he doesn't think he's worthy of love. So and that it's so sad. It's so, so sad. And um it that sort of manifests in a lot of ways. I just we also have to keep in mind, I didn't mention this earlier. The like Lupin is not a known werewolf. Like the only people that know about his condition are his parents, would have been the Marauders, Snape, and Dumbledore, and probably Minerva and Poppy Pomfrey. But like, it's not like this, the, the information that he is a werewolf is not out because if it was, he would have to be on a registry at the ministry. He would be absolutely sort of isolated from society. He's done that himself. But um, so he also just is used to having to do this because he can't have anybody finding out about his condition. Yeah. He mentions that him and McGonagall have talked, which is just cute. I could just imagine like sitting in her office having biscuits and hanging out. I she's just, probably so proud of him yeah I, I i'm i'm proud of him he's just he really is oh no you and i oh, there you are i'm back um he really is just so fabulous and and then snape brings lucian snape brings lupin lupin lucius lucius lupin snape yes. brings lupin um a potion and harry's like you might not want to drink that <laughs> He thinks, and he's, yeah, I mean, Harry has noticed that Snape is, like, particularly vile towards Lupin, if not, like, outwardly, like, just, like, in his, in his glances, um, and he, he jumps, the conclusion he jumps to is that Snape is poisoning him, <laughs> which is, like, he, like, does not put that past Snape, which is really funny, um, but we know that, actually, Snape is doing, if not Lupin, Dumbledore, like, a huge solid. So I, I wrote down two things about this. Number one, Snape must have been so disturbed walking in to see Harry and Lupin having tea and it just looking like James and Lupin, you know, totally. just like back at it again. Yeah. And that must have like shook him to his very core. <laughs> That's totally something I did not think about. Snape was shooketh. And then the other thing is this says a lot about Snape's character um he's not brewing the wolf's bane which is a complicated potion that he's really mastered for for lupin he's not doing it for remus's benefit he's really doing it because dumbledore has like asked snape to do it and snape is quite subservient to dumbledore yeah for many reasons yeah that's a really good point it's not it's it's not because he wants to do any any favors for Lupin. Yeah, it's it's of no regard. This was a big selling. This had to have been a big selling point for Lupin to come to Hogwarts at all, because I don't think, I don't know that Lupin's the kind of like knowing Lupin's character. I don't know that he exactly jumped at the idea of coming to Hogwarts the second Dumbledore offered him the job. I think he probably immediately went to a place of like, I don't deserve that. I'm not I've good enough. enough. You know, and then Dumbledore has offered, you know, Severus has agreed to brew you the Wolfsbane potion, you know, for a week every month. Um, and that's a huge selling point because Remus, again, it has this condition that probably causes him a lot of chronic pain. 
And this is a treatment that he has not had access to because it's so expensive and so incredibly hard to brew. Not even if he could brew it, even if he was skilled enough to brew it, the ingredients are expensive. Um, And it's just, it's funny that in wizarding society, the people who need this potion the most are likely the people who do not have the means to have access to it. Yeah, it's sad. The, the, the sort of the, I'll try not to go into too much detail about this, but the invention of the Wolfsbane potion is very interesting because we don't get an exact date of invention, but we get the sense that Lupin has not had access to this potion ever in his life. We don't know for sure. Um, at least not yet, but, but, um, it's, the impression is that this is his first time having access to this kind of potion to alleviate his symptoms of lycanthropy. However, I have, I often wonder like if this potion was around when James was still alive, James would have absolutely bought it for him. But the, the sort of insinuation is that it was not around until after James had passed away. So, so yeah, Snape is brewing Lupin, this Wolfsbane potion. Do you have anything else in this chapter? I didn't write anything else notable down. All we have to say, all we've left to say is there's the Halloween feast and then they go back up to the common room. The fat lady is missing. There are giant scratch marks against uh, um, on her canvas and they're trying to find her, but she has been attacked and they find Peeves. And he says, wait, I want to say the line. It's so good. They find Peeves and they're like, what happened to the fat lady? At the end of the chapter, they find Peeves. They're looking for the fat lady. They can't find her. And they find Peeves and he, he says, nasty temper he's got that Sirius Black. So Sirius has somehow broken into the castle and was trying to get into the common room, which is insane considering the amount of security they have. And now everybody's wondering how the hell was this guy able to break into the castle? And that's chapter eight. Join us next time when we go through nine through 12, I believe. And we're just going to continue talking about Prisoner of Azkaban. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening to our latest episode. As always, please subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And if you're not a listener on Apple Podcasts, it would still help us out a lot if you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. If you have any questions, comments, concerns about anything you heard in this episode today, please drop us a line at our Anchor profile. You can leave us a nifty little voice message there, or you can head to our Instagram at the Daily Propcast to DM us or leave us an email. Thank you.